Hello and welcome to the fifth season of Somerset Stories, the podcast which explores the lives of the people who live, work and create in Somerset. My name's Lewis Webb and we're back with brand new weekly episodes where I get to share the stories of some of the inspiring, creative and successful individuals and families that make this beautiful county their home. Since announcing this season on social media, I've had a lot of really nice comments from listeners and all your feedback is always appreciated. So if you'd like to send us a message, you can email hello at somersetstories.com. My guests for the final episode of this season are Lulu Urquhart and Adam Hunt, landscape designers dedicated to nature and ecological restoration. Having partnered together for many years, their philosophy embraces creating spaces that provide tranquility for people and homes for wildlife. Long-term Somerset residents, they were selected to work with Pete Odolf to create one of the county's most well-known and transformative gardens at Hauser and Worth in Bruton. More recently, their first ever garden at the Chelsea Flower Show, which put the spotlight on beavers in rewilding Britain, won the award for Best Show Garden. We met at their studio, and while there is a little background noise in this episode, it's worth sticking with a fascinating conversation. Lulu and Adam, welcome to Somerset Stories. Thank you. Thank you, Lewis. So I was looking back when we first swapped messages, and it was about 18 months ago that I think mm. there was a, uh, some chat. So thank you for your patience. We finally got together for this, which is the season finale of our fifth season. So thank you for, for being here. What's keeping you both busy at the moment? <laughs> Quite a lot. Yeah, we've, we've had a few inquiries since Chelsea, more than a few, really. And so we've got ongoing very patient clients who put up with all the Chelsea business last year. And then we've got a lot of new in- inquiries that we're looking at, new projects that we're looking at. So it's been an interesting and busy year. Mm. The brief is often uh, oriented to the wild. It's often oriented to this uh, deeper connection into the landscape. Uh, it's a really exciting trajectory. And now it's also about um, restoration, restoring species numbers, you know, really taking care. There's a real change in the way our clients are speaking to us in that they want to be the guardians and they want us to help them. And it's really exciting. So we're going to be sharing questions throughout this, uh, this interview. Mm. You've been working together as partners for quite some time. Have you developed a way of doing joint interviews? Or do you know how each of you is going to answer certain questions? We've certainly done quite a few in- interviews over the last year, I'd say. And uh, we do seem to muddle through quite well. Yeah, I wouldn't say that we knew what each other were going to say. I'd say that would be a rare occurrence. But um, <laughs> it's always actually, it's always really nice to be in conversation with Adam, I find. And so I actually really enjoy the process of the interview because it gives us a chance to ha- have those kind of conversations when in our day to day, we're probably more like passing a rugby ball. <laughs> That's really kindly, <laughs> likewise. <laughs> I mentioned you've been working together for, for quite some time now. How did you first meet? I had a project that I was looking at in Bristol and uh, the clients were two homeopaths and they wanted, they wanted a, a planting that related to medicinal herbs and homeopathic remedies. And that was Lulu. And, and, Lou, and Lou and I knew each other as friends. Lou knew a lot of, knows a lot about that. And that's how you came in, wasn't it, really? Yeah, they were GPs and homeopaths. Yeah. They were a really interesting uh, couple who danced tango with Adam. And we, en- we, we entered a, um, a beautiful 
dance in their garden really together where uh, Adam really took to a point for a lot of the structure and the hardscape and um, I weaved in the plants and we enjoyed it. We didn't know what was around the corner. We were both independent designers at, the, at that point. But um, Adam actually said it's nonsensical. We don't work together. Um, he saw the qualities and he saw the way that we could work better, stronger mm. um, if we were to. And um, I think I... I, I didn't see that immediately, and then after a couple of projects with Adam, I realised, well, I was very inspired by the way Adam works and the way his thinking progresses through design right from the start, right from 20-something hmm. 20, 20 years ago. Hmm. Um, and I've learned a lot through Adam, and it's lovely. We, you know, we, we pick up different things, we're fascinated in different things, and we feed them in, and we're able to hold the kind of the pillars uh, of the gateway, I suppose, and just let it all flow through and it, it works, we're in balance. Adam, I know you studied botany at university. Was there a history of that in your family? Oh, well, well there's, there's a story there, that's for sure, because my, um, my grandma was a great gardener and my mum too, but I've got these memories, like m- several people I know, going around National Trust gardens with my grandma and then getting back home and she'd sort of empty her handbag and there'd be cuttings left, right and centre and we had to sort of immediately start potting them on. Um, but also I was fortunate because I had you know, a very inspirational godfather who was a botanist uh, and environmentalist, the Reverend George Mole, he was called. And his parish was um, Rockbourne in Hampshire, down on the Dorset, Rock, uh, Hampshire border. And he taught me a lot about a love of plants and, and natural England and I think that's one of the places it really started. Then he moved up to St Bees in the Lake District and we had a long correspondence through my childhood and into my teens. Yeah, I, I remember being not dragged around National Trust places but being encouraged to engage with the history and the sort of the culture of it. Any in particular that stood out for you? Well, I love Wakehurst Place because uh, Tony Schilling, who sadly died last year, but he, he was the curator at Kew and he was good friends uh, with my mum and dad. And Tony used to take us not only on tours around Wakehurst Place, but he also took us down onto the, onto the Sussex Downs, onto the South Downs. And I was, but I was just was following, around, following Tony around who could identify every single wildflower we saw. Uh, and I just loved it. And of course, his expertise was Himalayan rhododendrons. So walking around Wakehurst Place was just it's like you're in another world. So it feels like, you know, you've been on this path then since a very early age. Was there ever a point where you considered alternatives? I've always been an environmentalist and I've always been an ecologist and a naturalist. But also I love gardens and I wanted to do something quite hands on. Uh, I've always been interested in politics, but it can burn you out. And I think there's something a bit more holistic and healthy about having your hat for me, certainly, having your hands a bit more in the soil, although I don't do that so much these days. I, I always wanted to work with nature, that's my thing. The other thing I love about it is it, it takes a long time to learn about what we do. You know, if you're you make a mistake in our, in our game, plant something in the wrong place, it might take you a year or two years to notice. And this is why a lot of the people, the great landscape architects, landscape designers, 
are in their 70s and 80s. You know, they barely retire. You know, you're just getting good. <laughs> Lulu, did you have similar sort of childhood experience of connecting to nature and plants as well? I suppose I had my mum and, and my mum's great friend, Patty, Patty Christie, and they would walk gardens pointing at plants together, chatting, chatting, loving, loving. But it was less uh, focus on, I suppose, names. It was more a, a childhood that was in down country lanes with my two sisters and free roaming and down by the, the river down in down at Aldermaston, um, down by the, the streams, the little waterfalls and just essences of nature and being outside a lot. And in my own garden, my parents used to love, my father was a great rose grower and my, and my mother kept, kept the garden beautiful, but there were trees to climb and I would always be up apple trees and cherry trees and we built camps outside. We were very, very outside. We had a, yeah, outdoors as, as children and we had a next door farm. We'd go over and raid and steal milk. And, you know, it was uh, um, get told off by the farmer. And um, it, was, it was just a love of the landscape, a love of, of nature and actually a lot of grief as I went through my 20s, seeing a lot of it being eaten up by commuter belts and uh, faster roads and so forth, you know, this kind of great loss. And also an experience with herbs and herbal medicine about, for my own healing and my own nurture, even from a, um, a teenager, discovering dandelion and all it did for your, for your system um, through my first periods and things and just really understanding what a powerful plant it was uh, just by drinking dandelion tea. And that set me, that lovely plant, that beautiful weed, set me on a trajectory that was plants, uh, understanding the power and the resonance and the healing qualities of them and, and their simple brilliance, I suppose. And then when I was in my 20s, I actually just saw a vision of myself with my hands in the soil and a baby on my back. And I was like, wow, I better get into this. I better get to the soil. And that's when I started working with nurseries and moved out to Spain to learn organic farming on the woofing scheme, moved from farm to farm and um, started experiencing growing um, different things, quince farms and almonds and sustainable small holdings and brilliant communities around that with music and, you know, wonderful people. And then when I came back here, I really felt that it was, there was, it wasn't farming I was interested in, it was more about the herbal qualities of, of plants and their dynamism. And so I turned towards Ayurvedic medicine and studied that down in Glastonbury with a brilliant man and understood that, you know, with the Indian system of herb, herbs and the fact that they choose herbs for a body type, um, it was so fascinating for me. It felt so obvious suddenly. And then I started thinking about how we translate our British herb law into that sort of system. And so the, those are the things I was thinking about. And, and, um, and I realized I didn't know anything about plants and how to grow them. So um, I came down here to Somerset and um, found a job in a beautiful local nursery and just helped by watering and potting on hundreds of plants. And it was there that um, I started to really understand roots, shoots, 
and the qualities of different plants and started to fall in love with different palettes that were far wider than the herbs themselves. And, and then I got a bit hooked. <laughs> There's a long-held sense that gardens are an essential part of Britishness. So does that still hold up, or is it more of an outdated piece of nostalgia? Wow, that's a question. Mm, it's a fascinating question, because I think about it, and I, there's, a, there's a Britishness to gardening which is hilarious and classic and brilliant. You know, there's a sort of um, pastiche of the British gardener as much as there is the most incredible gardens and projects here on the ground. But I think there's so much going on around the world and I think we need to be careful to not have that island mentality. I think for me the way we're moving towards land and garden in inverted brackets care is a huge shift change and it's about our relationship with the land and then wider to that the earth. And I think We've got a lot to learn from other cultures and from other countries about their relationship with land and water. And the garden is this, like an oasis and a place of paradise for the individual. And it is whatever anyone wants it to be for themselves and for their health. I suppose in my mine in my heart I feel like we're traversing the idea of garden at this point and I and I really encourage that I encourage everyone to keep traversing and keep remembering that the landscape is is our earth and that it you know to draw it as close as they can to you to each person as well as loving enjoying and really kind of frolicking in these fantastic plants and cultivations and um, ideas but I also think Britain is a place for innovation in an outdoor space and often wild innovation. And I think that also should be really encouraged. I think it totally holds up. And it's because the UK is an island and we're also blessed with a, a wonderful climate where you can grow plants from an extremely wide range of different habitats and, uh, and uh, conditions. But I think also in the same way that the, the ecology of this island has been more studied than any, the ecology on any other island uh, and any other place, it's because it is small and we need to be guardians of what we have. And this is why in a funny way, when, when we talk about rewilding, it's almost like a political choice in the UK. Um, on mainland Europe, wolves, boars, bears will traverse boundaries, but here we're an island. And so I think we've kept the wild out for a long time and this idea of gardening is, is deep in our psyche. And, and long may it continue, because I think that one of the most radical things you can do is grow your own vegetables. Mm. And that sounds funny, but there's something freeing about that. There's something liberating. And mm. I think also for most of us, it's very hard to feel like you have an impact in any part of the world in terms of the environment, but you can have an impact in whatever small space, little patch of ground you have. And I can see that gardening's changing, but I don't see, I don't see any less coverage on, on the television about the RHS shows 
I don't see any less gardening centres. I think, I think it's a strong part of our culture. You mentioned how it's changing. Can we maybe go into that a little bit and, and rather than talk about where we are now, maybe just explore when it comes to how we organise outdoor spaces in the UK over the last, I don't know, 50 years, how that has changed and how that's evolved over that period of time? Ooh, well, 50 years is a difficult period of time to describe. But I mean, it's interesting if you look back at kind of medieval or some of the old Persian miniatures, the garden was a place where uh, it was full of fruit and flowers and it was safe. And often the wild was shown with outside, outside the garden, without the walls. And that was true across the cultures, uh, the Middle East and uh, the European cultures, and even further afield, that this, the garden was safety from the wild. And then I think you get to people like Capability Brown, Lancelot Brown, Bridgman, great landscape designers where they started talking about the whole view of the landscape and bringing that in. And then we went into the more, into the latter day where things started being more parceled up. And I think at this point in time, we're starting to look again at the garden, but in, instead of uh, it keeping the wild out, it's one of the few places where you've got the wild. Because farm, you can no longer guarantee that there is any wildlife value to a lot of agricultural land. Uh, and in city areas, where you often sometimes do have more biodiversity than in, in, in a lot of agricultural land, you want to be encouraging that into, our, into your garden. So I think that we're at a point where things are changing. One of the expressions or maybe labels that I've seen associated with the, the type of design that you guys are known for is the new perennial movement. Can you tell me a bit more about what that means, what that is? The new perennial movement was a massive moment or process in landscape and garden design. I mean, it happened in the early 80s. It was, it was also called the Dutch wave. And there was people like Carl Forster, Pete Aldolf, uh, Cassian Smith, brilliant plants people, all of them. They were looking at wild plant communities and seeing that as a way that you could, there was a beauty in it that you could express in a garden. So they started bringing in a lot of different grasses and using them as a matrix and trying to emulate a meadow in a garden scene. Now, one of the good things, about this, this was a significant change that had environmental benefits because with this process, you're looking at the plants in terms of their structural, their architectural form, and, and also you were allowing them to stand into the autumn, into the winter. So if it was seed, if it was flower heads, they might have seeds, for example, Rebecca echinacea, that linnets or goldfinches could feed on. But then you also had the grasses standing, because a lot of them flower quite late in the season. And people like Pete, who obviously did the gardens at House and Worth, he was saying, look, isn't this beautiful? Mm. Don't cut it down, which was what the traditional gardens would do. You'd get, I remember it with my grandma, you cut the border down in September, October, and that was it, you put the bed to winter. And so I think what the new perennial movement did, it's, it's still, it is the main way that people tend to do gardens these days. I mean, there's still traditional designs around, but it's one of the main ways. And I think it, it allowed, 
a loosening of the aesthetic and it's paved the way for a more wild gardening, garden design approach because people started to see what they did, had seen as mess, they begin, began to see the beauty in it. So I think it's very significant and it's been going on, it must be 30, 40 years now. To what extent then, if it's about embracing more wild species and, and plants and that kind of thing, to what extent is the importance of those, the choices that you make being linked to native species and making sure that it's in keeping with plants that have grown in that particular area throughout the millennia? Before you look at uh, what plants are native or non-native, mm. and that's, another, that's a discussion for sure, but there's also how you actually look after the plant, and, and that is, that's a really radical change, to snip or not snip. <laughs> and actually, it's the, it's the, you rely ultimately on the gardeners or the estate managers, the people who are tending the garden, to um, get on board with that kind of um, new aesthetic as well as the people who are potentially the clients of the gardeners or, okay. you know, it might be your own garden. But it's, it's that letting alone so that this stand into winter and the seed heads and the, the decay and the, the dying form is held, which is basically emulating nature. Um, so I think this kind of, first it's, it's how you choose to treat the plant and then what plant you choose, um, whether you're native or non-native or somewhere in between, a naturalizing plant that's been here for thousands of years or hundreds of years or tens, then that's, um, that's a journey. Because there's obviously every, people covering all spectrums of their love from highly bred plants all the way through to pure native, sort of natural local flower, you know, just wild flowers. Um, and I think it's you've got to take it on your own journey, actually. What I'm seeing is that there's a mineral quality uh, to the wildflowers um, in their pollen and the way that they draw in, in difficult, difficult soils, how they draw those minerals up and put them through into the pollen. That's what's interesting me at the moment is the, um, or all of us actually here in the studio, is, is the way that the, these pollens are full of a kind of medicine, a vibrational essence that needs an, a vibration uh, um, that, um, that is required by the local fauna. And for the health of, of birds, insects, and, um, and beyond. And so it, it's, I, I look at the highly bred things, I look in a, in a, in a garden centre and I feel a bit sad, I feel a bit very, I'm not sure where this pollen's going, I'm not sure what it is, I'm not sure even if they have much pollen anymore, you know, you know. and yet there's a passion for me probably in the centre of the spectrum which is um, plant specialists, plants people and incredible plants of different varieties like drawing the species out into different tones and sizes and you know but it's subtle and, and brilliant and it's a huge celebration. So as a, as a plants person, I love that centre spectrum. What Lou said about not really starting with a plant, it, it, it's one that people pick up on a lot. So you want to just use natives. And, it, and I think a garden that attracts wildlife or is good for wildlife is much more complex than that. And a lot of gardens, whether they have natives or non-natives, achieve that already. It's, it's having a garden where you've got what animals, particularly birds and fauna, read as habitat. And that could be as simple as not clearing the leaf mould off the beds. 
by creating small habitat for insects, leaving dead wood on, on, on the ground. And then when you get into the native, non-native, I mean, obviously there's this issue around the quality of the pollen, but also a lot of butterflies and, and moths are quite generalist feeders when they're adult, but when they're caterpillars, they're really specific. And so it's knowing what kind of species you've got there and whether you, whether you need violas for your fritillaries or, you know, or even ragwort for your cinnabar moths. You know. mm. It's just so um, they can lay their eggs or eat the leaf, not so that they can take the pollen. It's, a, yeah, and it's going on a deeper level. And so I think um, we're all new to this, really. I mean, this is, this is an, 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 and our clients, one of the things we have to have with our clients is uh, an agreement that we're going on a journey together. Mm. It's not quite as simple as, ta-da, here's your garden. Uh, mm. A lot of our projects go on for a while and it's, uh, it's a, a winding and weaving process. You mentioned, I suppose, the scope of the projects that you tend to work on, which seem to be larger scale, where it's easier, potentially, to go on a journey with, with people who have the space, the time, the financial resource to be able to do that. Is there a way of trying to uh, connect better with the earth and environment for those who are looking to be stewards of their space, but they might have smaller spaces or less time to be able to, to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, whatever size of patch of land you have, uh, you know, Lula and I, don't, our respective gardens are not large. Uh, and I think you can work as best you can with whatever you've got. And I think the looking at your garden in terms of its potentiality for wildlife as wildlife habitat, it's one of the new design parameters. It used to be that you, you well, it still is. You want in a general garden, you want a shed, you want a path, you want a terrace, you want a border. And you want loads of wildlife now. It's fire one of the, pit. Yeah, fire pit. It's one <laughs> of the main parameters. And so it can be really interesting to start researching what's around your garden, what's around your, your locality. When I walk around my village, it's funny I call it my village. I, I, I don't just look at what's on the bit of garden I've got. I'm always keeping a lookout on other areas as well. And about um, just just to see what's going on. We ha had an, uh, an issue at the end of, there's a track that comes down to two houses, ours is, ours is one of the houses there, and uh, there was a big glowworm colony at the end, and the landowner decided that he wanted to, he needed to widen the track and I spoke with him and I knew that I saw 40 glowworms there one night in, in August. And I knew that he, what he was going to do was basically lift the soil out and turn it over. And I knew it was going to destroy the glowworm colony. And I did have a chat, but he didn't listen. And then the next year I saw a couple and then the year after that I saw one. And I got very sad about this. We've got some good populations of glowworms in our village, but they're a declining species. And I noticed that actually in my garden, I found out how you, I found out how they reproduce and, and what the, the optimum size is for the grass ward that they're in. And so there's a whole area, part of my garden now that you just absolutely can't touch. 
until August when you need to scythe it down to about six inches because there's glowworms in it. Over about five years, they kind of migrated along the track uh, and into the garden. So I think when I'm talking about finding out what's around you, mm. it's being aware. Have you got hedgehogs around? So you, should, you know, Froome's got loads of hedgehogs. That's the only place I ever see them dead on the road, sadly. But are there hedgehogs around? Great. Put some holes in your um, in your fences and make sure you've got good habitat for slugs and snails. That kind of thing. Uh, are there frogs or toads around? Great. If you can have a small pond without any fish in. Mm. Um, have you got glowworms around? Great. Make sure you. Keep yeah. the grass at a certain length and make sure you've got a good uh, habitat for the snails that they feed on, those kind of things. And, and, and I, that's a journey that we can all go on. Mm. And remember that every time you use a pesticide or herbicide, you're going to affect the entire chain from the, in, the pest, your pest you're trying to uh, nail through, through every mammal and uh, other insect and um, and plant you know and the water which then goes into the aquifers it's it's um remember that you'll wipe out um vast amounts um without meaning to you know if you've poisoned the food that they eat the, everything will start Slug declining do kill hedgehogs that's for sure mm. yeah i mean i think that's you know it's it's really important to remember that we've got to do our bit because um, the, the amount that's going on the fields through farming is just going up and up and up. And I think we've got to take real mm. care now. We've got to be really careful as, again, we are all guardians of our plot, whatever the size. I think stewardship is, is the key. It's something that we made sure of in our practice that we don't use herbicides, we don't use pesticides. And when we started out, it was really tough. That was a really tough call to do that because it, getting rid of plants that you don't want, also known as weeds, without using herbicides is quite, it's more expensive, it's more manual labour, but it, it took a while for us, but we, we, we haven't used herbicides or pesticides in, I don't know how long, 10 years? I think it is really encouraging to see the growing number of people who want to bring more nature into their gardens, mm. look at how plants can, can attract different types of, of wildlife, but at the same time, beyond just the use of herbicides and pesticides, there's a growing number of people who are actively removing nature from their spaces with so artificial grass, you know, just paving the rest of, of their space. It must yeah. be so frustrating and saddening as, well, not just as humans, but for, for you and your position in particular to, to see that happening. Yeah, it's, um, I think it's sad for us all actually. You know, because a lot of this just ends up in landfill or like in the earth. It's not landfill, it's space in the earth. <laughs> and it's plastic, that grass. You know, it's non-biodegradable. It's a shocker. I think the thing that, that saddens me, I mean, more than, say, plastic grass, is, is the loss of language and culture around nature. Mm. So I think it's a symptom of... Uh, a culture that's more and more divorced from nature. And yet, you know, what gives me hope is how many people tune in for David Attenborough, how many people tune in for uh, all the RHS shows, uh, and how many people, for example, are up in arms about sewage going into, sewage spills into our rivers. I think people care, I really do, I do think that. Mm. 
Um, and I actually, several of the national newspapers are now against plastic lawns, including, I believe, the Daily Mail. So I think their days are numbered. Mm. <laughs> I really do. The Daily Mail's on against them. They haven't got long. <laughs> Bringing things back closer to home then, we're a stone's throw from one of Somerset's most famous gardens, uh, Udall Field at Hauser and Worth, and that's one uh, that you've been involved with. So before we get into the story behind that, for anyone who hasn't visited, how would you describe that particular garden? So Pete's Field is an acre and a half of what's called naturalistic planting, new perennial style planting. And uh, it's got 27,500 plants in it, roughly speaking. And off the top of my head, I think there's about 120 different species of grasses and uh, perennials. Some are native, many are not. Some from uh, North American prairies, some from uh, the sort of Asian steppes, but all well suited for this sort of prairie planting as it's called or new perennials planting and it's a sea of bulbs in the spring and then slowly this sort of crescendo builds up until the autumn and then you've just got these incredible forms uh, and seed head standing and grasses standing and then it's it's cut in February and the whole thing starts again. Well, it, well described. It grows up to um, above waist, I'd say, in many parts, and then higher in others. So the kind of collection of um, perennials and grasses is um, it's, it's quite an impact as you're walking through it. It's kind of body height. So it really ignites the senses. So if you haven't been, um, hopefully that enables mm. you to picture it a little bit. Grass seed heads and wind and birds and, and um, a lot of colour. The plants are... Are surprising they're brilliantly chosen and they all snuggle together very well um, there's also the cloister which is a totally different planting which mm. is just I don't know it's so simple but it's mind-blowingly beautiful mm, delicious um, but that's a sort of limey apple green grasses mixed with some beautiful perennials um, that come up claret colors and purples and a few butter yellows and it's just a yeah, again, it's, it's surprising, but um, very much it's um, a flavour of its own, and, and, and that's fun. You got involved in the project pretty early on. How did that come about? Tell me about the, the story behind that one. Wow. We were, we, I, well, our studio was in Castle Carey then, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And, um, and Lily came back and she said, never guess what Pete Aldolf's doing, because it, it was big news that Dursley had been bought. And mm. then the next bit of news was that Pete Aldolf was going to design the garden there. One of our number one heroes. And, with well, the, the, um, and at the time, he was probably most well-known for, what, the Highline mm-hmm. yeah. New York project? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and his books. Yeah. And his books, because he, he particularly spoke very much about embracing decay, the, mm. the plant in decay. And he, he's a beautiful photographer as well. So, yeah, that, that, he was, you know, as part of that movement of the new perennial, he was, he was voicing some very interesting things that were turning people's minds uh, around. Then I think Lulu 
bumped into bumped into or chased Alison Workman, <laughs> who was curator. I think he chased it. Uh, at, at the art gallery and said, uh, is it true about Pete? Can, can you give us a call if you're looking for anyone to help? Because we couldn't... I think we, we were recommended. Were we recommended? Yeah, I think lovely Kath oh, at the chapel okay. recommended Good. us. But, you know, but I don't we, know. we actually really couldn't bear the idea that, that Pete would be working in Bruton and that we might not be involved with the project and that someone else would be. Our hometown. We basically yeah. would have had to move. <laughs> So we were really talking about that, weren't we? It was just, there's no way, because he, he was such a maestro to us. He still is. You know, it was an extraordinary opportunity to work with someone of his, of his knowledge and experience and ability, really. At the time, did you think that this new venue and garden was going to be so transformative to the local area in the way that it has been? I don't think we had any doubt about it. You know, it, what was really interesting with Ivan Manuela from House and Worth was that they they weren't looking at Pete as a, a landscape designer or as a plantsman. They were looking at him as an artist. And when you saw the kind of the way they were approaching it, I think they just showed him for showed him to the world in a different way. Mm. And I think we we knew the whole everyone working on that site knew that um, the opening day was the opening day and they had, well, I can't remember whether it was two or three years of art exhibitions lined up and, and that's how it was. But the one they started was, was actually Pete's beautiful planting plans and they just showed them as works of art. That's mm. That one up there. Yeah, we've got that on the wall in the studio and it's, um, it's what we were handed. Um, as part of the interview process, we, we were uh, interviewed with um, two or three other um, studio design pairs or studios and um, designers. And um, yeah, we went through interviews with Pete and all sorts. His, his English wasn't as good actually back then, so it was quite terrifying to do an interview with him and then worry if you've been misinterpreted and so forth on those questions. It was a terrifying interview for us. It was like being interviewed by, I don't know, um, you know, like Picasso yeah. or something <laughs> in the painting world. It's like, ah, oh, showing your yeah. own planting plans to be just go, yeah. what do you but the, but the, the funny thing is we got given that plan and we got given a master plan of the whole thing. And said, right, how much is it going to cost? Because we don't want mm. you to just do the detailed design. We also want you to build it. And you have to pull together a whole landscape team. Yeah, we had to come up with the price mm. as part of our submission. Yeah. yeah. It was quite terrifying, wasn't it? it was, yeah, it we can't tell you what the price was, but we, uh, <laughs> we can't. But it was quite, yeah, it was quite a journey. It, uh, it was pretty much the only project we did for two years. But going back to your question, the um, it was a strange chalice to be holding because we loved, you know, to be given the job was extreme honour and very exciting. And many people around here didn't actually know much about Peter or anything. You know, it was it's because it was our our area of passion. Um, but uh, we did know we did know things would change from that point around Bruton and and and. Um, it was interesting to be holding that chalice because we love how it how it's always been 
you know, with new things comes new opportunities, new adventures, and and it's it's been an exciting time for for Bruton, I think, and a great moment of growth and creative growth in, as well because of the nature of it being an art and garden oriented. But um, yeah, it was definitely it was definitely a moment because Dursley was a derelict farm for years and years and years. And it was rather charming. They filmed Chocolat there, and all the was, old props from the film were still on site when we all went round it. Yeah, it's just an old French courtyard because mm. it had this wonderful cobble. the The main courtyard to the farm was was just was just so lovely. It had a sort of broken culvert in the middle of it. It was cobbled, weeds, and when we were asked to look at it, we were like, "Whoa, wow! We don't want it. We don't want to change this. So how is it that we can?" do all this and get it back to how it was as well and sort of take it back to that derelict it became the kind of sort of buzzword. But it was, um, which is harder to do than, than you can imagine because obviously a broken culvert kind of in a public area needs, needs a resolution that's probably not a hole in the ground bubbling up. Mm. But, um, but uh, yeah, it, it had a spirit to it that was captivating and... and um, and I suppose, you know, I suppose that is one of our challenges as we arrive to places is, is to find that spirit and try and hold essence of it despite, you know, kind of, you know, bringing in new ideas. We did a study of different board tamps for concrete. We did a study of the gate vernacular. We made our own gravel mix, you know, the level of detail that went into the hard landscaping, let alone uh, working with Chris and Toby Marchant, to, who were growing the plants mm. and created the bed. It was a very, very steep learning curve. And what were your most memorable moments of that project, that two-year period? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Some of them were a bit I mean, trauma. <laughs> it well, was Somerset's wettest winter. 2014 was the wettest winter, and there was 80, nearly 90 square miles of the levels were flooded. And Dursley, what is now the car park, was a lake for seven weeks. One of our digger drivers was getting a boat in, had to get a boat from Muchelney across to his car and then drive in for work. And uh, the schedule was such that we had to make the time up. And uh, it was carnage there absolute carnage it was so wet and and we know somerset clay we've worked with it enough but there's a lot of somerset clay there and it's very unforgiving and you can't work it in the winter you know you just can't because uh, it won't forgive you no it was quite a moment to get through that well not only that is adam was doing a lot of this alone because i was having my second child at the same time and um, that's also a very strong memory for me. Well, whilst um, for the garden, because my beautiful boy was born, and um, you know, while I was feeding him, I'd be on the phone with Adam, <laughs> hearing about the latest. <laughs> oh no! I I woke up every morning at five, and I had a, a notepad by me, and I had like twenty things in my head that I had to write down. And then I could go back to sleep for an hour. <laughs> but, but, I mean, Tolly, my eldest son, who was three then, he, you know, he planted some of the plants and he still mm. walks around that garden 
with that knowing and um and my little one was on the front of me RT he was on the front um you know in a baby carrier and you know I remember getting on a digger and (laughs) I think it was more for a picture but you know just being there around that time this our whole team working together so Mm -hmm. so brilliantly um pulling together a, a plant list that was wider than we'd ever known before and 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 the kind of um the responsibility of some of the plants to grow knowing that the clay soil would challenge them mm. so much well we brought in a poor soil we specifically got a soil that was more alluvial and had less clay in it because mm. we knew there was a lot of clay there and we mounded it up lifting some of the plants out but in mark the gardener is brilliant and he's kept really faithful to the vision and it did work i mean I'm really proud of it and it, I think one of the things that's so nice is that it is a public garden mm. and people, you see people walking around it and enjoying it. I mean, how many, what's it, does it add a million visitors now? And it's far free, off it. It's a it? huge number Free of to entry, which is good. Mm. And, and it was quite Herculean, the whole, the whole process. I mean, digger drivers, because it was that wet winter, um, you know, digger drivers were going down to deliver um, loads and then getting stuck. And then having to be tractor, tractor drawn out, and you know that along with our wonderful blacksmith Dilly, who was on site wielding and bending a kilometre of, of edging, and and the plants just coming trolley load by trolley load. They were overwintering down in Sussex in some retired nurseries, um, glass houses, and then they were sent over, and uh, you know the laying out of that many plants, twenty seven thousand plants with kind of, you know, in the, in the foggy mists of winter with the sort of spray markings and the kind of Udolf shapes, you know, emulating that plan basically on the ground. And it was all so, you know, kind of wonderful mm-hmm. and, uh, and picturesque and everyone, everyone working, I mean, huge teams toiling and working extremely hard. And, you know, that's, that's often what it takes in these landscape worlds. And, um, you know, yes. often people don't know that. And, it, it all looks rather lovely at the end, but I mean, we we had a we had a a piece of machinery that that uh, riddled the soil and riddled the stone, and slowly over the space of the winter, it sunk <laughs> nearly a meter, and it seemed like everyone was trying to work out how they were going to get it out because it was big, and like Lily said, we the lorries delivering the soil stopped. They would not come to sight because every time they came, they sank and they had to be pulled out by a seventeen ton excavator and they they really you know these lorry guys take their vehicles very seriously they're always shiny and they like to keep them clean and they were just coming down the track and immediately sinking it was i mean it was it was herculean really it really was Mm. great fun but also not sure i'd do it again (laughs) (laughs) i certainly do it differently yeah (laughs) And what was the feeling like when, you know, you're able to present the finished item uh, back to your hero? Oh, Pete loved it. And we worked with him subsequently on other projects. He was very proud. He is very proud of the, the garden at House and Work. Mm. Very proud. I think one of the, the key things is the, you know, the maintenance by Mark. I mean, you know, to have some, you know, to have a passionate gardener mm. team, um, and head gardener who 
who can keep something like that a legacy, a true mm. legacy. It is a real honour. It's an honour for designers when that happens because it can so easily go another way. Yeah. I think it was always one of Pete's favourites, although yeah. I think he's got new favourites now. We're about a month away from uh, the Chelsea Flower Show. Last year, you created a garden for the first time and won the Best in Show, so congratulations. Thank you. Slightly belated. Thank you. Can you talk me through the concept for that garden? We were approached by someone called Alex Denham, who was uh, the ex-head of shows at Chelsea. And she was working for some, with a, a fund, I guess you'd call it, uh, called Project Giving Back who wanted to uh, put money into Chelsea show gardens that aligned with good causes. And it was a new initiative. It's now in its second, third year, second year. Uh, and they were looking for designers uh, to come up with ideas. We had very little time to do it, but she spoke with us and we were working with her on a project in Windsor. Yeah, in Great Windsor Park, yeah. Yeah, wonderful, lovely, beautiful project. Around some veteran trees, and it got into the conversation that led to this, wasn't it? An invitation to Chelsea. Yeah, and she said, who would you, if you could do any garden, what would it be? And who would you work with? And we just said, well, it would be rewilding Britain, and it would be something about a rewilding process, because we've been seeing it on several of our projects, uh, both in Somerset and Dorset. And we're fascinated by it. Mm. And so we... That was the motivation behind this garden. And then, of course, the parameter, the fact that it is a Chelsea garden starts coming into play. So it's, we, we, we had a 150 square metre plot. And as well as having beavers on two of the projects we're working on, they also work really well for Chelsea because all Chelsea gardens benefit really well from having water in them. Uh, it would have been much harder to show Eurasian bison or, or kind of wolves or lynx or sort of any kind of apex predators. That would have yeah, been a really hard yeah. thing to show in Chelsea. A 10 by 15. But of course we could fit it, you know, it, was, it, it, it worked. And uh, we rang up um, Richard Curl from Landscapes Associates uh, and Ben Garner from Water Artisans and, and just said, look, uh, basically we want to do a beaver dam with loads of this is the water going across the whole site and Ben said can you do it and Ben said yep I think we can do it and Richard said the same and then I said how can you do it and they both said don't know yet <laughs> and so we left it with them it was born of a passion uh, to show something and we didn't feel that anything else would suit that anything else was really uh, up to the kind of fascination and interest that this was this had an opportunity to present, and so we sort of said it as an, an ultimatum to each other, if not Alex as well. But just, well, we'd do this, but we'd only do this, <laughs> and and they went for it, which was amazing. We were quite astounded for the first part of the process because. Um, it felt brave and um, it felt exciting and we were being charged with something that was um, was going to be a, um, a completely different flavour. So aside from the size issue then, why were beavers the inspiration for this? 
Well, I suppose, as Adam said, the water um, element, the fact they live on a river system. And we managed to pull it off and show all the, all the things that we wanted to show. But in a, in a small area, um, there's a lot going on around a beaver habitat. Um, so it's exciting. But as we built that garden, we, we learned a lot about the nature of those plants because you're very close to them as you're mm. setting them out. You're intensely close to them. In fact, your head's in them for days on end as you're trying to work out the right constellation of, of, um, of the plants. And in, in our garden particularly, with the creating a beaver landscape and a riverine, you know, nat- native um, river system or stream system, we had plants who would grow in water and, you know, really, really coming into how they would behave. But I think the garden itself, as we, we had a, a beautiful week to stand and watch the garden, witness the garden and see what happened. And I think a lot came through to us during that time as we, as we watched it all play out and we watched what insects and birds actually came to use the garden. But also understanding that the beavers are a dynamic species uh, what is known as a keystone species because they, they hold up the central arch of an entire ecological restoration in this instance of the river systems. And one of the ways they do it for the plants is that they are constantly working the soil. So they're constantly, their beautiful tails, flacking mud, uh, they're mending, they, if they hear a noise of running water, they want to dam it. That's their, that is their purpose of being. And so um, the mud, it gets moved around a lot. So they're constantly opening up fresh places for seeds to land and for new colonies to arrive. And that's very, very interesting. That's that's a new thing. Our our landscape is very stagnant, as it it turns out, in Britain, because we don't have these dynamic species in play at the moment. And our animals are kept away from river systems or away from woodlands and so forth you know they're, they're, it's more of a sort of farm scene rather than a wild integration of these species and like cattle and horses and 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 obviously beavers are new to these lands once again um so i think uh, as we watch what native seeds then what actually happens in the dance between the beaver and the plant who are also known very endearingly as as nature's gardener because they will put um, plants all over their dams and their lodges and so forth. They'll be burying roots into the roots then grow and create security and stability for the lodge or the dam. But I think also more more subtly what they're doing is bursting open opportunity for other plants to come in. And watching that kind of dynamic environment is going to teach us a lot. I mean, even when it comes to how maybe an invasive non-native plant like the Himalayan balsam is really swamping our river systems. Uh, you know, we were looking at beaver sites where they just disperse the balsam and then provide opportunity for new plants. And it was really, it really occurred to us to really start paying attention to this new type of, um, um, well, species and the way it works. The thing, the thing is, was what Lou spoke about earlier, we wanted to show beavers as a keystone species. So with keystone species, and, and strangely, they can often be predators, which you wouldn't imagine, but with keystone species, they kind of turbocharge ecolo- ecological restoration. They're creatures around which rapid ecological change happens, and they create many ni- micro-niches. And, and, and 
So the Beaver was a very good one to use to show this product, uh, mm. this, this process. It'd be much harder to show, for example, goshawks, which create a predatory niche for hawfinches or, you know, that kind of thing. But the beaver one, because it's so all-encompassing, it's got water in it, and a lot of the habitat they create is good for plant life as well as fauna life. It, it just was a brilliant fit. Mm. And we love them, and it seems a while, you know, it seems a long time ago, but even a year ago, wilding hadn't been... It hadn't been in the news as much as it has since. Yeah, necessarily clearly presented. What then are some of the common misconceptions that you find people have about rewilding or ecological restoration? I think the, I think the term rewilding itself is problematic. Mm. Um, and I think, as with everything in the modern day, having one word to describe a really, you know, set of a really complex idea uh, is always problematic um, because one su- that one word can mean for some people, well, we want to bring walls back into Dorset or Somerset. Uh, and for others, it could mean something as simple as just letting a few more nettles grow in your garden. Mm. Now, I mean, there are, stri- there are strong ecological uh, parameters and definitions of the word rewilding, but I think that the movement itself is is struggling with it. But what we what we are seeing is that a functioning ecosystem is an extremely dynamic and potentially rather challenging aesthetic for we who've grown used to a pretty static landscape in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the static landscape up until this, the so-called green revolution after the second world war it was doing pretty well i mean a lot of the megafauna had been removed but bird life and stuff was doing well it was just when they started the push for grow uh, for homegrown food in the 50s i mean my uh, my grandfather was a, a farmer and he he got cancer in his early 50s pancreatic cancer Mum is sure it was because of the, um, the DDT and the, the herbicides, the pesticides he was being asked to use. The, the aesthetic of a rewilded landscape is a difficult one for people to accept. accept. And yeah, I mean, for, because it's messy, right? Because it's messy uh, and also I think it, yeah. it's, it's difficult. You know, England and, uh, and the UK is, is farmed and garden to within an inch of its life. Mm. And there's no, so there's less and less scruffy places where it's okay if there's a beaver hanging out or, mm. or an Iberian lynx or something, you know. It's, it, 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 and and I, I think um, for us it was that when we first started, when we got the Chelsea Garden, uh, when, when they agreed that we could proceed, we took our crew on this mad journey round various rewilded sites and even we you know for us it was quite a kind of reset and Isabella Trees talks about it a lot in her book Wilding the importance of scruffy messy parts in the landscape they've almost been removed completely and not even head most in a large majority of hedgerows these days are no longer functional in in biodiversity terms they're too Mm. flailed and too thin Mm. Uh, and this dynamic scruffy landscape that we need 
to embrace this new aesthetic if we want to bring wildlife back, if we want to stop the, the decline of, uh, in bird numbers and insect numbers. Mm. It's got something to do with um, the way creatures um, navigate landscape. And so um, if, if, they, if they get to a, um, a shorn hedge and a flat field, it's very, very difficult to navigate and cross that. It's not safe. It's like, it's like hitting a motorway. And the same, it's the same with these kind of, you know, the, the kind of forests for timber. Um, they're, they're just sort of blank spaces in a way. But as soon as you get to a deciduous native forest uh, or woodland, um, where there's fallen branches, scrub, shrub, everything um, in the middle, as well as the upper and lower layers, and as soon as you get to hedges that are 10 plus meters wide and you know scrambling and growing, the sounds of the birds, the, the you know the buzz of animals, um, is is significant. It does feel like Somerset is a bit of a hub for projects and activity that is along the lines of, of rewilding. Is, is there quite a lot of stuff like this going on in our area? There is. I mean, it gets even hotter down in Devon, but there's a fair bit going on here. And there's some areas that uh, could rewild really easily. I mean, for example, the Somerset levels could rewild in, an, in a moment. Mm. And uh, once upon a time, there were even Dalmatian pelicans flying there. So that's a, that's a good keystone species. I mean, obviously, we've got some key people around as well in Somerset, haven't we? Yeah. Well, what's happening now is that there's, there's land link-ups between uh, projects. So there's large areas of land and people are deciding to dedicate these areas to nature and allow nature to have the space back. And then these, these areas are linking to others. There's actually now a corridor that is really mm. large, um, sort of birthing on, um, you know, Drewley Hill above us in Brougham, all the way um, kind of Whitham and, and, um, and beyond, because there's a charity, Heal, have just started a re rewilding project there. And um, it's very interesting um, to suddenly realize these are joined up joined up mm. pieces and this is going to create huge impacts for um, corridors for nature so not only is there that but there's also people doing really really good land practice not not necessarily rewilding per se but really um, really working on um, seed progeny for their meadows um, on hedgerow health on tree planting and native trees and, and obviously with it, there's um, kind of different ways of taking care of water and the, and the various um, kind of water systems around here and drainage. And, I, and we see more and more um, scrapes being made and dew ponds and so forth. So I think, you know, when you come up from the macro and as, an animal, as a bird protection, you're flying over, the potential is getting higher and higher. And I'm excited mm -hmm. about things like moth counts in this area. Just, just from knowing how much more pollen is available um, because of everything that's being let, you know, from grasses onwards, it's being let to seed. I wanted to mention the forest of Selwood. I was going to say you should mention that. Yeah, which is... But you see, that's, that's really interesting because you, you said about heel and also the forest of Selwood are working with the old forest of Selwood 
the, the, the original boundaries of it, which was Froome down to Bruton. Well, it was across. It was, it was actually Warminster. Yeah. Um, up to Southern Bath, and then all the way, all the way across to the beginning of the level. But there, there is a long, a, a long band of green sand where you've got Longleat, mm. Stourhead, and also Duke of Somerset, the Somerset Estate, uh, which is an incredible soil for woodlands, and it's mm. a big piece of woodland, and it, it, it it's. It's got stretches of conifers, it's got stretches of uh, ancient deciduous, it's got recently cut deciduous. Incredible resource, and there's a lot of landowners around it who are interested in introducing some of these keystone species. I mean, I don't know if it's there yet, but I think, and I, I know that some of the people who put down pheasants for shooting would not like it, but I think um, pine martin is, is one that, could thrive mm. in Selwood Forest. Yeah, no. and it's in it's uh, on the red list, isn't it? The pine martin. I don't know that, but I know red that if species. we brought if a pine where where you get pine martins, you can get red squirrels. They thrive mm. weirdly because the pine martin co-evolved with the red squirrels, so it finds it hard to hunt them down, but can eat grey squirrels, and the grey squirrels are what prevent the red squirrels being in a lot of our woodlands. When you, when you put all those things together then, does that give you hope for the future? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the only way we can go. We are in, we're the, you know, the, the crash is not, is not acceptable to most people. You know, we are um, either going into a sixth extension or or we are the restorer species and it's as simple as that and I know where I stand we'll do everything in our power at this point to bring back uh, the balance the thing that's interesting about wilding and rewilding and, and some of the ecological restoration that's going on now is how fast it can occur that's what's mm. caught people by surprise yes and so for example we've one of, one of our projects, beavers were put in there a year ago. They've already got elvers, juvenile eels, in the pools within a year. And I mean, eels are one of the, I mean, their population over the last 30 years, their population has crashed by about 90%. Mm. And so it's this kind of thing that, given the chance, and, and you know, the rewilding experts. Uh, environmental experts are saying, well, we need minimum 30, probably 50% of the planet needs to be allowed to go back to natural processes. It used to sound, I, when, I, when people said that, I used to think, that's crazy, that's never going to happen. But actually, I can, I can see it happening. We could do it. But it has to go along hand in hand with a sustainable and sensible agricultural food policy. Um, because food security is a, is a big issue. Um, but yeah, I, I feel really hopeful. I do also feel really sad when I see wanton destruction of the environment, of habitat, when, in mm. the name of tidying the countryside up. Lula, Adam, we're going to play Somerset Location or Obscure Movie Title which is the game where I'm going to give you names and you have to tell me whether you think they're a place in Somerset or the title of an obscure film. <laughs> so I think we're going to do this back and forth. Who's going to go first? Adam will go first. Adam's going to go first. Yeah. So the first one, Adam, is Lady Street. 
street in Somerset. It is a street in Somerset. It's in Dulverton. Mm. So the next one is Lulu's. The Outpost. Oh, I'm so not good at films. It's annoying. But um, I'll say Somerset, Street in Somerset. It's a film. <laughs> it's a film, Lou. <laughs> it's a 2018 war drama starring Orlando Bloom. Oh, yeah. should have so, seen that. Yeah. yeah. Back to Adam. Lantern's Lane. Film. It's a film. <gasps> yeah. 2021 horror about urban legends. Ooh. Yeah, I haven't watched it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> Two nil, Lou, no pressure. <gasps> I'm feeling it up in my heart. All right, Lulu. Uh, Giant's Grave. Giant's Grave, not Gant's Grave. No, Giant's Grave. A street in Somerset. It is. <laughs> Get in. Phew. It's in Chard. Get in. Mm. <laughs> right, back to Adam who's two for two at the moment, no pressure. <laughs> the Labbot. Uh, Somerset, definitely. It is. How did you know that? Don't know. <laughs> Don't know. <laughs> it's in Keensham. Oh, is or it? Keensham. Keensham, yeah, okay. The Labbot. Yes. Yeah, it's a great, great word. It's a good, good address. Back to you, mm. Lou. Chantilly Bridge. Chantilly Bridge. That's a film. It is a film. Oh, yeah, I got it. Yeah, I, I watch probably about one film every decade. So. <laughs> it's from this year, uh, but it's actually a sequel to a 90s movie. Adam, back to you. Trips Corner. Somerset. It's in Somerset. It's in Yatton. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, finally then, Cold Brook. Well, I mean... Either, really. Um, Coldbrook's not particularly distinctive as a Somerset name. Um, and it might be a slightly um, out there or bland film. <laughs> Let's go street in Somerset. It's a film. Okay. Yeah, Is right. it a really well-known film? No, I never liked it. No. Oh, okay. No, I had to pick really obscure ones so that people wouldn't know. Before we go then, where can people find out more about your work, your projects and what you're up to? Well, you can, um, you can find us by searching Urquhart and Hunt. It's actually urquharthunt.com is our website. We have a beautiful studio on the high street in Bruton. And we have Instagram, um, again, Urquhart Hunt. We have, you know, various media outposts. But um, always happy to hear from anyone. We've got an article, we'll do a piece for the Homes and Garden on a monthly basis. I think July's is on Meadows, that's the one we've just written. Adam Lulu, thank you so much for your time. It's been really fascinating talking to you. You've been great guests. Oh, no, thank, thank you. you. Oh, thank it's you. a complete pleasure. Really, really lovely to be on Somerset Stories. Really is. Thank you for listening to this episode of Somerset Stories. If you liked it, you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on social media at Somerset Stories or email hello at somersetstories.com. Somerset Stories is a Whitstone production and music is provided by Jazar under Creative Commons. <laughs>